Welcome to the Full Frame Podcast. I'm your host, Mike Walter. Rising sea levels, severe flooding, blazing forest fires, intense heat waves. These are a few of the consequences of the impact of climate change. People around the globe are concerned. In the next federal election that we're going to see upcoming, our communities, young people who have turned recently turned 18, we are voting for climate and all eyes are on our leaders. We've been aware of this problem for decades, but it wasn't until 1988 that the term global warming was popularized when a tenacious James Hansen, then a NASA scientist, testified before Congress stating that global temperatures were on the rise. This evidence represents a very strong case, in my opinion, that the greenhouse effect has been detected and it is changing our climate now. Fast forward to now, and the concern has only worsened. But there is hope. Under the Paris Agreement, adopted in 2015, countries around the world pledged to keep temperatures at or below 1.5 degrees Celsius in order to keep it manageable. And to achieve this, gas emissions would need to be cut in half by 2030. The clock is ticking. There are multiple crises in this world and we cannot just let go of what is an existential crisis, the climate crisis, the biodiversity crisis and the pollution and waste crisis. Inger Anderson is the director of the UN Environment Program. I spoke with her during the 2022 United Nations General Assembly in New York, right before she headed to Sharm el-Sheikh, Egypt for COP27. This episode of our Full Frame podcast is called Climate Adaptation. Full Frame. Inger, I always like to start by asking, what is this like? Uh, Because I think for each person, it's just kind of like a a marathon in a sense, and it's also a sprint, right? It is a marathon and it's also a sprint. Um, In the middle of the General Assembly week, clearly, it's not every day that you have heads of state from this many countries, so many foreign ministers, so many events happening. And so it's really important that you get your message out there, meet with the people you need to meet with. That's a marathon. Part of it maybe because we're in this for the long run, but the sprint is that you just have five, five days to meet with as many people and try to influence as much and try to move forward, in my case, the environmental agenda. But the marathon will continue thereafter because we have some important meetings coming up and some important deadlines that we need to meet. What does success look like when you leave here? Well, I've focused a lot, obviously, on raising ambition for as I know have have many others, uh, for COP27, uh, which will be held in Egypt, in Sharm el-Sheikh. I've also focused a lot on raising ambition for on biodiversity, COP15, which will happen in Montreal in December. And I've focused a lot, a lot on mobilizing and engaging with private sector, as well as with civil society, but private sector here in New York is very powerful and strong and you have had many CEOs here for the plastics work that lies ahead. The world decided to have a treaty or instrument or an agreement to be defined what it will be called 
that will, that will end plastic pollution. And it has given me three years to organize and enable those negotiations to take place. I want to dig a little bit deeper on the plastics, but maybe if we can step back and talk about the origins because we're, we're looking at the 50th anniversary uh, this year. Um, that's a pretty lengthy period of time. Uh, there has to be some accomplishments, some, some things you can hang your hat on. Uh, talk to me about these 50 years and, and what have we seen? Obviously, we, we all know there's still work to be done, but, but there has to be some achievements that you must look no, at. No, and there absolutely are. Um, you know, whilst it's reeled out as Exhibit A often, but I'll do it again. I think the, the fact that in the 70s, scientists saw that we were literally creating a hole in the sky, right? We were creating a hole in the ozone layer, and we were doing that by some of the chemicals we were using, HCFCs and CFCs, but that gets lost in the chemicals we use for cooling, for spray cans, for foams, and so on. And the world decided to put together a convention, the Vienna Convention, and a protocol underneath that, the Montreal Protocol, to phase out these chemicals. And today, 99% of these chemicals are phased out. You have different chemicals in your refrigerator or in your air conditioner, or in your spray can, that does not degrade the ozone layer. And the ozone layer on both sides of the poles is healing. That's an amazing success, an amazing success, because it meant every refrigerator and every hairspray in the, back in the 60s or whatever, or every spray can, had to use a different gas. It was massive undertaken by an entire industry. And similarly, uh, lead in petrol. Look, we added it because we thought it gave our engine more oomph. Didn't really, but it did poison our children. And it did have very negative environmental impacts. And last year, the last pump, last liter of leaded petrol was pumped in the last country and now we have no lead in petrol. So we know that we can, we can, when we work together across the family of nations, 193, saying this thing is bad for us, we know we can do it. That's what, that's that, it's that spirit we need to find for climate and for biodiversity. So the lessons there, because I think, uh, you know, when we look at climate change and we, we look at, and, and believe me, you know it in its totality and, and it is, it's not just one small focused thing, it's, mm. it's a lot. Um, we tend to think it's so dire, and yet uh, there are lessons from this, right? There absolutely are, and I think the beauty is that we are living in this world where all information is available to everyone. And so we need to roll out more aggressively renewable energy. We need to roll out more aggressively um, the financing for that renewable energy to those who cannot afford it, because there's still many nations that live in energy poverty, where not 100% of people have access. And it's critical that these countries can serve their people in the same way that other countries can. But they need to do it with renewables. And so we need to have payments, financing, investments going to these countries so that they can get that. We need to have innovation, and it's happening. We just need to accelerate it on e-mobility, electric mobility, the way to go, non-emission based. Of course, we need some other uh, elements to create the batteries, etc., for these vehicles, but we can do that. Human beings are incredibly clever and smart. 
The issue is now that we are not doing it fast enough. And so those shifts that we need to see in the economy, where we decarbonize, where we do not um, use coal, oil, and gas with the same amount of intensity, where we understand that we need to level all, we have to accelerate that. Right now, with the conditional NDCs, these promissory notes that countries gave, they said we are going to reduce our emissions by X. When we add that up, we come to 2.7 degrees at 2100. And when we then take on board the net zero pledges, others have said we will arrive at net zero, we come to 2.1 degrees. Today, we live at 1.2, 1.3 degrees, and we're already seeing wildfires, floods, inundations, um, and droughts, and catastrophes, think of Pakistan. So we need to move much faster and with much greater acceleration. You know, it's so funny you talk about the aerosols and we don't see those and, and, and the lead, no one's pumping that any longer. But we think about coal and we think about uh, fossil fuels and they're just kind of the, the fiber of a lot of economies uh, and, and getting that shift in place, saying, look, we, we've got to, it, it's, it's not as easy as turning a light switch off. Uh, it is making that change, that shift, seems to take time, it needs to be accelerated. What can be done there? And, and what's your message to, to businesses where there, there seems to be this intransigence? Well, we're moving as fast as we can. And, and, and some businesses indeed they are, and more power to them for doing that. So we, we, we really uh, want to, to, I would really want to underline that. But look, I mean, we can accelerate things also by government incentives, also by government regulations. Um, and if we accelerate uh, investments in renewables, well, that's part of the solution and it'll be good. It's a new climate economy, as we well know, a new opportunity. It's important that we understand that folks who work in coal mines not be left behind. And there's a reason why in this country where we happen to be sitting right now in the United States at the General Assembly, while some states don't want to give this up and why there's strong interest. And we have to understand that. That's legitimate in that these families and these communities are dependent on these industries. So what are we going to do to ensure that we do not, quote unquote, leave anyone behind? Government has to do a degree of enticing new industries to those areas. We have to have incentives in place so that these, uh, these industries can accelerate. It's not easy, but on a good windy day in my own country, Denmark, we are entirely relying on wind. On a less windy day, we import from Sweden uh, that is generated uh, otherwise. But I think as one begins to invest in renewable, it also takes on a momentum of its own. I live in Kenya and Kenya invested um, 30 years ago in geothermal, they sit on the great African rift. They have amazing geothermal potential. The heat of the earth can be simply boiling uh, and, and thus drive, uh, drive uh, generators and create power. That's there and of course, we've seen what Morocco has done on concentrated solar, what Saudi Arabia is doing on solar. There are real opportunities here and opportunities that we cannot miss. You mentioned Denmark and Kenya. You know those well. Uh, I was in Iceland last year. You look at geothermal. You look at some Precisely. cities where it's almost 100%. Uh, Absolutely. Um, 
But people point to those and say, well, you know, those are small countries and and, and I'm sure you've heard these arguments. So I'll play devil's advocate and, sure. I'll, and I'll let you swat it away. Um, <laughs> you know, you talk to people about energy and they'll say, well, what about baseload? You look at a city like Los Angeles where, you know, it's, it's not going to be windy all the time. You're not going to rely on the heat of no. the sun all the time. You know, we have to have the coal or we have to have natural gas. What do you say to people who say that? And w what kind of strides are being made there? No, I think you're right. Baseload is complex and we have large heavy industry and we have large cities that needs to keep the lights on all the time. <clears throat> Excuse me. So baseload matters. And I think we this is where innovation comes in, where battery and storage comes in, where smarts come in and where we need to get much more with it, with, uh, with technolo technological solutions. But one thing is clear. If we continue on the trail we are on, we will live in a nearly three degree world. And that is clearly not a world we can live in. So we need to innovate, <coughs> we need to innovate our way out of this mess. And we can, but it will take determined leadership. It will take leadership that is courageous and dares be honest with the people and, and yet and think beyond their electoral term. Think deeper into the horizon about their children and their grandchildren, that child born today that will live in 2100 as an 80 year old, right? What world is that? This is a conversation that we need to have. And that is where leadership comes in. What world is that if there isn't leadership? Well, that's an, a world uh, too unimaginable, I mean, too horrible to imagine. It's a world where 700 million people will have to move because their places where they are today become unlivable. It's a world where we will have a climate catastrophe every day, where that will be the normal. It's a world that will, where, where many places will not be able to sustain agricultural productivity that we expect. Um, it's a world of misery and poverty. And if anyone thinks that they can hide behind a fortress and live a good life in a fortressed world whilst the other half suffers, uh, we don't understand that we are connected in this. And so that is a world, I don't want to paint this apocalyptic uh, future because we know what we need to do. Will it be expensive? Yes. Will it be complicated? Yes. Do we have a choice? Absolutely no. Mm -hmm. And as you pointed out early on, I mean, we don't want to get too dire. You have seen success in the past where we have an insurmountable Absolutely. issue and, and it was overcome. So Absolutely. And today, you know, renewable energy is very cheap. It's in many, many places competitive with coal. You know, the price of uh, concentrated solar, the price of PV, the price of wind, which used to be more expensive because there was less of it and a lot of innovation, R&D had to be done. But now it's actually competitive. And so when you're seeing in Kenya, for example, there's a company called Mkopa. They give a small loan, $1,000. People are, are not, uh, you know, this is a poor country. And you take that loan over a 10-year period and you get a couple of panels installed on your roof and you pay the equivalency of what would have been your electric bill and bingo you have solar power you have your power your kids can do their homework after dark um, you can have food uh, 
keep in your refrigerator. We can get there poor and rich. We just need to put our minds to it. And so a huge responsibility sits on our shoulders at this resumed session of the fifth UN Environment Assembly. A responsibility to deliver solutions to the triple planetary crisis, the crisis of climate change, the crisis of nature and biodiversity loss, and the crisis of pollution and waste. I want to get to the fact you had a, a speech at a side event uh, at the General Assembly providing a roadmap towards a circular plastic economy. And I want you to talk about that. What, what does that look like? Well, today, of course, we, we take the raw material out of the belly of the earth and we create raw polymer and we create this amazing, durable, flexible material called plastic that we need. We are not enemies of that material. But once we've taken out of the earth and into the economy, and it's doing all its stuff for us, containing our food and enabling that we can move things across the world without the heavy footprint of glass. What do we do with it? This precious material, we just discard it. We use it once, once. And that just doesn't work. It doesn't work all the more when we are heading toward a 10 billion people Earth. We just can't pollute and throw this in now into the environment. So what we want to have happen is, of course, that it stays in the economy forever, as long as we can do that. I recognize some things will have to be incinerated, medical waste and so on. So that's well understandable. But considering that of the global waste basket, the trash can of the global, when we average it out, 60% of that is plastic. And most of it we used just once. We bought three tomatoes and we had them in a little bag and then we put them in the refrigerator, we throw it away. What's that? It makes no sense. So the packaging industry has a huge job to do. The brand owners, they set the specifications after all. They can set different specifications. The converters of the resin into the material they don't really mind how much recycled material they get into the material they produce. They just want to meet the demand. So I think that there is a real opportunity, and I'm finding with industry that, in fact, people are leaning in. No one wants to have their brand bobbing around out in the ocean. It's not good for business. It's not good for investors. It's not good for consumer confidence in your product. So finding solutions is what this plastic negotiations will do. Uh, let me close by asking you about food waste because that's also an issue that's come up. I, I heard someone, and, and I, this may be off the mark, but they said, you know, it's, it's basically what we're seeing is somebody going to the grocery store, getting three bags of groceries, and you might as well just take one of the bags and just throw it in the trash each week. It's, it's, it's really a serious problem. It very much is. How, how, how would you describe it? And, and what can we do? I mean, all of us can contribute there. What are your suggestions? Well, there are many things, and I'll try to be fast, but food waste has sort of two aspects to it. In poorer countries, it's often from the field to the market because of bad transport, lack of cooling, uh, delays at the borders, inefficient processes in terms of getting it from the field. So a lot is lost in storage, rotting, et cetera, et cetera. So that's a, a, a dimension. In developed countries, it's 
from the refrigerator to the garbage can. So it's post after it's and it is at the retail level where we don't want ugly things. We don't want a crooked um, carrot. We want it to be thus just so. And so a lot is, is sorted out and taken out of the supply chain. That is ridiculous. We've used soil and fertilizer and energy and water to create that crooked carrot and it'll taste just as good. And so if food waste were a country, which is a little weird, but it would be the fourth largest emitter of CO2 as a country. Because think of all the transport and we moved it around and now it's gonna rot and it'll create um, uh, uh, gases that will have a negative impact. Uh, so uh, methane, etc. So we really, really need to be much more efficient. As we have more scarce, I mean, we, we shouldn't be expanding agriculture if we are actually throwing it away. We shouldn't be using this water. We shouldn't be transporting this stuff. Each one of us can do a lot. If we live in a wealthy country, buy what you need and eat what you have. And a wrinkled tomato tastes fine in a stew. You know, I mean, think about and be innovative of what, what is left in the refrigerator. Um, second meals, the second day, are just as good as they were the first. And we can just warm them and they will be fine. Um, and I think it's this over-purchasing uh, that we tend to do. Uh, we're so wealthy that we can afford it maybe, but it's very unsmart from every point of view. And so food waste, yes, is a real issue and one that has climate dimensions, nature dimensions, because we are using this land to grow this stuff and could be just wild nature, but it isn't. So let's at least eat what we have produced and obviously pollution dimensions. So from the triple planetary crisis point of view, the climate crisis, the biodiversity and nature crisis, and the food and the, and the pollution crisis, food waste is absolutely critical to tackle. Manages to connect all the dots. Inger, thank you so much for your time, appreciate it. It's my pleasure, thank you for having me. That was my conversation with the director of the UN Environment Program, Inger Anderson. This is all for this Full Frame podcast. Our thanks to my colleagues, producer Christian Pena and Jan Sergenen, here in our CGTN studios. And if you want to watch the full-length Full Frame show, please go to CGTN Now on Apple TV. From all of us at Full Frame, I'm Mike Walter. Thanks for listening.